Hello, and welcome to the Objective Health Show. Uh, today, we are talking about, well, who cares about healthcare is the title of our show. So we were talking amongst ourselves a little bit about um, uh, healthcare, and it's been in the news recently because I think of the Green New Deal that AOC has uh, brought forward. I'm just going to call her AOC because I always get her name wrong. So, um, And I think it has a lot of Americans kind of uh, on edge, kind of freaking out a little bit. Um, the whole idea of socialized medicine seems to really uh, freak out a lot of Americans. And um, so we, since we thought that since we have like kind of a, a diverse section of hosts here, I'm Canadian, Elliot is from the UK, and uh, Tiff and Eric are both American. So we have different perspectives on healthcare. Um, and I think uh, we thought it would be a good opportunity to kind of discuss that and talk about our experiences and what do we think about healthcare? You know, how, how, what, what system is better? You know, what are the differences between the different systems? So yeah, we were going to kind of just tease that out a little bit and, uh, and discuss it some. So I think maybe to start off, we could talk about the differences kind of between the systems, because I mean, the, the term socialized healthcare really, as far as I understand it, that's the other thing that I should mention is that they're, they're all quite confusing the systems. And um, I think that uh, that's part of the problem is that nobody totally has a grip on the way that all the different systems work. Now, socialized healthcare, my understanding is it's kind of like a catch all term um, that usually refers to some kind of universal healthcare, where the, the general idea is that a person is not, you know, kind of has a safety net where if there is some kind of illness or any kind of um, medical um, intervention that they need um, is covered at least in part um, by the state um, or by some, some form of insurance. But the term socialized healthcare really describes a specific type of that where the state actually owns um, the hospitals or they run the, like the hospitals themselves or the doctors actually work for the state, um, which is quite, you know, what, what the UK has could be described as socialized medicine. Um, what Canada has is not because although the state um, does pay for it, um, the, it's actually still done through private companies. So the state doesn't own the hospitals or the doctors don't work for the state. And um, France is different again, because I think they're similar to Canada in that they have insurance companies. But so all these different countries have very different systems set up and socialized medicine actually only describes one of those. So I think really, if we're just distinguishing between the two, we should be like universal healthcare versus I don't, what would you call what America has? <laughs> I don't even know. Uh, um, private, okay. private healthcare. <laughs> Yeah. Death care, sick care. Yeah, sick, sick care. care. Yeah. Well, my understanding was that with socialized medicine, you don't pay any expenses out of your pocket at the time that you're receiving whatever care. Like if you go to the hospital or you go to a doctor's office or you need to get medications, but it is taken out of your taxes though. Mm. So you pay up front and everybody shares the cost of the universal health care amongst the entire population. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, that is my understanding of what socialized healthcare is along with what you said, Doug. Mm -hmm. But it's still very confusing because not, like you said, not every country, even if they do say that their healthcare is socialized, none of them act entirely in the same way. Yeah, like maybe the Nordic countries might have a different way of doing it. France, Germany has a different way of doing it. So I'm confused. And the fact that people in the U.S., because of this new Green Deal, they get scared when anybody says socialized medicine. Like, I'm not even sure that people really understand what socialized medicine is. Because right. in the U.S., there are some things that are socialized about the medicine. Like you have Medicaid, which is for poor, poor people uh, under the age of 65. And then Medicare is seniors. Mm -hmm. And then you have like the VA system, which is government run. 
and the people who work there are government employees. So there's a lot to tease out. Yeah. Yeah. And like I said before, I think it's kind of triggering for a lot of Americans. I think mainly because it gets spun as socialized healthcare and then it's got that social word in there. So everybody thinks of socialism, communism, and it's like, we don't, we don't want our country to be a socialist country, you know, fair enough. But um, I think because of that, a lot of the nuance actually ends up getting taken out of the conversation Um, because I mean, essentially like maybe, maybe we should just say this. Like I, I think in an ideal situation, the way I personally feel about it is that nobody should be able to be, we should have a, a social safety net where people aren't completely bankrupted by an illness or an accident uh, where something comes along and suddenly these medical costs are so huge that it just completely bankrupts people. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I think that I personally, I think that's insane. Uh, maybe it's just because I'm a Canadian. Um, but honestly, it, it seems to me that that the fact of the matter is that in the in the US, if you get hit with something hard, um, like an accident or uh, some kind of severe illness where a lot of um, uh, money needs to go into that, the fact that somebody's family can be entirely ruined by that is to me insane. And the people like and so I see Americans kind of like fighting against this idea. And to me, that just sounds insane. It's kind of like, you know, it is insane because I think that a lot of Americans feel that way, too, especially if they have been subjected to these outrageous medical bills and maybe they had to file bankruptcy because they got sick. Yeah, like, uh, there's a lot of bankruptcies, like 66 percent of all bankruptcies in the U.S. include some kind of medical bills in it. Which is yeah. crazy. Yeah, I don't it's think crazy. the average person would think that it's fair that just because they got sick or they got into an accident or they hurt themselves at work, that their entire financial future is ruined just because of that. Yeah. Yeah. But then you've got the other side of things where people are like, well, I don't want to have to pay for somebody else's medical stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you know, the the U.S. is kind of steeped in this idea of individualism and it's kind of like I shouldn't have to support somebody else, which well, we did our taxes recently. We pay taxes for Medicare and for Medicaid mm-hmm. taken out of our paychecks. Every yeah. well, every paycheck we get paid is listed on there how much they take out. So it's not exactly like we're not paying for anybody else's health care. We are. <laughs> And under the Obamacare rule, which I believe is supposed to be non-existent by next year, if you don't have medical insurance, um, like for a married couple, it's a $1,700 tax fine. Now, luckily, um, you know, people who are doing taxes have a workaround with that. But if your tax prepares this year, like in previous years, since the Obamacare came out, you would have to say whether or not you had health insurance for the previous year on your taxes. Hmm. And if you didn't, you'd have to pay a penalty. But I think this last year you can just say, Oh, I couldn't afford it or whatever. And then you can get out of having to pay that fine, which is ridiculous because basically they're forcing you to pay for a service, whether you want to or not, or whether you're going to use it or not. Well, maybe for our viewers, we could, Maybe you guys could describe what Obamacare actually is, because it was su- it was like all over the news and everything like that. But um, and I, I, I personally think that it was kind of like it, it's kind of like this this terrible system that um, was almost like a straw man because it's like they held this up and then people now argue that you see socialized medicine doesn't work. Look at what a disaster Obamacare was, mm-hmm. whereas it wasn't really like it wasn't really universal health care. Like my understanding is that it was basically just forcing everybody to get private health insurance. Yes. And it was, it was was actually called the affordable care act, which was Mm. everything that it's not. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So basically you are forced to, well, in the U S we have, depending on the type of job that you have, you can get insurance through your employer. You can sign up for your employer's health plan. 
is what people typically do. But certain lower paying jobs, like if you work at McDonald's or if you work part time, especially like if you work full time at McDonald's, you might be able to get some benefits. But if you work part time or if your job just doesn't offer insurance, then under yep. Obamacare, you have to buy private insurance through something called an exchange. And they can still cost quite a bit. I think there is one of the articles where it has, um, it's on Consumer Reports, health insurance, the Affordable Health Care Act per state, like how much uh, deductible would cost. You have to, some of these uh, healthcare plans, I think they go through like bronze to silver to gold to platinum or some name like that. I never bought any, but you have to uh, pay a monthly premium, which can be like from a couple hundred dollars up to, I don't know how much, thousand. a thousand or so. And some of these have very high deductibles in the thousands where until you pay your deductible, your health insurance doesn't kick in. So if your deductible is $1,000, you have to spend $1,000 out of your own pocket first before any of the insurance will start paying for any of your care. Hmm. And a lot of people won't buy into a lot of young people, a lot of healthier people who don't really go to the doctor. If you're like some of these monthly premiums are like a couple hundred to four hundred dollars. I mean, if you're young and you're not necessarily, you know, have a, a good job. I mean, four hundred dollars a month is a lot of money. I mean, that could be a car payment. That could be your rent. That could be part student of your loans. mortgage. Yes, yeah, student loans. So I can understand why people wouldn't want to buy into it. And I certainly did it for that reason alone. Mm-hmm. Besides the fact that I don't go to the doctor, but. <laughs> Yeah, so the affordable, I think it was a disaster. And still people aren't covered because people can't afford it. It's not affordable. Yeah. Well, and what's interesting, if you work like a state job, say you're a teacher or transportation worker, when you apply for the job, they offer you what's called a benefit package. And Mm -hmm. usually the benefits include some sort of medical care and then – dental or vision and then you know a 401k but what's interesting when you look into it is it's not really a benefit because you are still paying for it Mm -hmm. it's coming out of your paycheck and it may be only twenty dollars or twenty five dollars a week but that still seems to be rising it could be more than that too yeah Mm -hmm. and if you have um a spouse and children then it even goes up even more right well, that's, I mean, that's kind of similar to the way things work in Canada as well. I mean, we do have the kind of the universal health care, um, although it doesn't cover everything. It doesn't cover vision. It doesn't cover dental. Um, there's a number of different things. I don't think it covers prosthetics. And there's a number of things that it doesn't cover. And a lot of times that is done through employee um, insurance. Uh, so depending on your job and similar to what you were saying, if you have, if you work part-time, you don't get in on it. And if you don't, if you don't, if you have a really good job, it might have very good insurance. And if you have a not so good job, then it might have kind of the bare minimum. And a lot of that stuff works with deductibles as well. Like with dental, it's very rare that you'll have a dental plan that will actually cover everything. It'll have a deductible there. So you have to pay the first like $500 or something. Maybe it's not that much, but it, um, yeah. So, I mean, that's that's kind of similar in a sense to what we have in Canada. Does What about the NHS, Elliot? Does it cover like dental and vision and things like that? Yeah, to some extent, to some extent it does. You have to, it's like greatly subsidized. So you have to pay a certain amount of quite a small amount um, depending on what it is. Mm. Uh, for sort of more complex treatments that can be a couple of hundred pound uh, but mostly for a checkup you're paying like twenty dollars mm. um, so it's it's not much it's quite cheap um, the NHS generally all of the healthcare services unless they are what are called or what are classed as alternative health services uh, generally everything is covered on the NHS 
So mm. that means, I mean, even you find uh, massage therapists, some of those are working for mm. the NHS, osteopaths, um, dentists, opticians, um, physiotherapy, um, dietetics, practically all of the conventional sort of healthcare professions um, are are covered on the NHS. So, so someone uh, who, who needs to access that generally can access that um, either at a very low price or completely for free, mostly completely for free. But there are some fundamental issues with the way that it's going now or the way that that exists. Yeah. And it's not as simple as, wow, people get it for free. That's really good. Actually, it seems that now... Um, in you know in 2019 um, for the past couple of decades at least especially in the past 10 years things have been going really downhill Mm -hmm. um, and what you're getting is actually people are completely dissatisfied with this system because they are having to wait potentially nine months for an appointment yeah so yeah there are there are many holes in that system i think yeah, that's that's definitely a key. Um, see, the problem I have with universal healthcare in general is that, I mean, to me, the ideal would be having a system where um, someone could do the kind of treatment that they want to do um, and have it covered. So it's not just that, because in Canada, my biggest complaint about the Canadian system is that it's basically you're covered for like pharmaceutical interventions um, or conventional interventions. But if you're not interested in those or you're interested in, you know, you do a lot of reading and you find out about alternative treatments and stuff and, and the conventional doesn't have much of a, um, a, you know, much to offer in terms of what you're going through. So you've, you've done some research and you find out that there's other stuff that you could do, but it's not covered. So it's kind of like you end up with this this kind of system where it's like, if you want to do the conventional stuff, which may or may not be beneficial at all, then you're covered. But if you want to do anything else, you're screwed. You, ha- you have to pay for that yourself. So not only are you paying through taxation into this system that you're not able to benefit from, then you on top of that, you have the cost of going to see uh, an alternative practitioner or you know, alternative, alternative methodologies, things like that. Yeah. And even, um, even for people who aren't interested in alternative therapies or alternative practitioners generally. Um, so I'll just give you a kind of a brief rundown of how it works in the UK. So like you've just said, we all pay a certain amount of tax to prop up the NHS. And so, um, the philosophy behind the NHS, which was originally to provide um, f- uh, a system of healthcare which was free at the point of entry. So mm. that was the fundamental philosophy behind the NHS. And I think it was a really cool one, you know, and it worked. Um, it worked for quite a long time, actually. But the problem is, is that essentially as the years have gone by you have essentially politicians and public officials who have really defunded it they've they've gradually reduced the funding while um the cost of of running the nhs has actually increased hmm. and so you you're getting a situation where the costs are going up but actually the funding is going down and so there's a couple things that happen there and it's really, I mean, if you speak to anyone in the UK, this is commonplace now. It's its quite sad how it's turned out, actually. So you have things called post uh, things called postcode lotteries. Do you have those anywhere else? I've never postcode, heard of that. Postcode no. lottery. Right, okay. So basically what you have is you have a certain set of treatments. So say if you have cardiovascular disease and the NHS basically – the way that so patients don't get to choose what kind of treatment they get okay they they don't have the option it's it's basically decided by the nhs public health officials uh, like the government basically deciding okay so here's the research to back up um the use of this drug 
Therefore, what we will do is we will purchase this amount of a drug from a pharmaceutical company and everyone who falls within this category, everyone with this diagnosis has this drug. Mm. Okay, so so there's no choice. You can't say, I don't want that drug, I want something else. It's like, no, this is the protocol according to the guidelines. They're called NICE guidelines. And so that's the protocol and you have to stick with that. So essentially you have some drugs which cost more than other drugs. Okay. And you have this thing called the postcode lottery, which is completely bizarre. I I did learn about the logic behind it, but I've forgotten it. But basically (laughs) what it means is that if you live in a certain area, you may have access to basically there's a certain amount of drugs or treatments which are allocated to a specific area and that's limited. So for instance, if you are living in one area and you would like to access a treatment which is available for your health condition and your postcode where you live, the area that you live in falls outside of the range of where that therapy is um, available then you don't have access to that. You have access to a completely different therapy. Wow, that's insane. And and there's a basically, it's depending on your postcode and the amount of resources which have been allocated to that postcode. It's really strange and really complicated. But basically what it means is that people who live five miles down the road from a city do not have access to the same treatments that people who live in that city does. And it's really strange but that's one of the things that's one of the things that's kind of messed up about this but at the same time what you have is when you have the uk government which have basically um reduced the funding or cut the funding like systematically over a long period of time they reduce the funding to such an extent so what you have is you have hospitals what they've done is previously on a ward where you would have um when you'd have 20 nurses, let's say, because of the cuts in funding, what you've got now is you've got one or two nurses which are taking the like part of the job of the doctor. Hmm. You've got one or two nurses, and now you have these things called healthcare assistants. Okay, so healthcare assistants, they're not trained. They get uh, like a, a a couple weeks training through the NHS, but they don't have degrees, but they're having to take on the jobs of nurses and nurses are having to take, take on like the managerial jobs, which they are not trained to do. So what you end up with is because everything is so underfunded, they need to save costs. These people, these H, these healthcare assistants are much uh, cheaper to pay. So they cut the amount of nurses. They get in all of these under-trained underqualified individuals and then the nurses are taking on jobs that they're not competent to do there's a lack of doctors because people aren't training to do medicine anymore because of the the state of the nhs and so essentially you get a a system where there is just a lack of competence Hmm. and in the past couple of years i mean the past 15 20 years you've seen more and more accounts of hospitals completely failing their patients people dying of dehydration left right and center and there's a hospital just in the town that i live in which was actually investigated because um there were multiple unnecessary deaths and so people are dying all of the time because there are simply not the resources to be able to to provide the care and so you have people who basically just to carry on and another another <laughs> problem with this there's so many problems but essentially as i said right so i see people privately because what i do is private and the amount of people that come to me who have been passed from specialist to specialist so they might go to a neurologist and then a urologist and a gastroenterologist and the problem is is they're being passed between all of these specialists to get a diagnosis but they have to wait four or five months to get an appointment because there are literally no appointments. And so you have people who are waiting like a year to get an appointment with a specialist and they finally decide that they, they can't, they can't wait any longer. So either they have the money to go private and they go private, or if they don't have the money, then they suffer. Yeah. Um, and, and 
I mean, GP appointments to be able to get an appointment with your doctor. Some people have to wait weeks for for an emergency appointment, like emergency when they're feeling really sick. They're told that they have to wait like two weeks because because there's so there's such a deficit in the in the number of doctors, in the number of nurses, um, because many of them are leaving the profession because of the stress that they're put under or they're going private. And I don't blame them for that because yeah. they're having to see 200 patients in a day and they can only allocate five minutes per patient. So the ultimate result is that the, the healthcare, the quality of healthcare is so it's, it's decreased to such a level now where it's not sustainable. Um, it's really not sustainable. And just to add to that as well, is what you see is that actually the NHS is is gradually being privatized. Mm-hmm. So many of the services um, which were offered on the NHS have actually been sold off to private companies, such as um, the ambulance services. They've been sold off. They've, a lot of those have been privatized. GP surgeries have been privatized. Um, you have the canteens in the hospitals privatized. You have entire wards in hospitals privatized. <clears throat> and that's a big problem because when that happens, you have, um, you, you essentially have a private, private company who is, who is there to make profit. Mm-hmm. And so what they will do is they will cut corners and essentially provide the minimum amount that they can whilst mm-hmm. making charging the the most that they can and so they are costing the nhs a lot of money because the nhs is having to basically pay to outsource services um, and they're you know twice the rate that the nhs would charge but what it ultimately means is there's a lot of research that's basically shown that the level of care is much lower when when you outsource a, 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 a health service when you outsource an ambulance service, they turn up late. Sometimes you can be waiting 24 hours. <laughs> Ultimately, it's gotten, to, it's gotten to a point now where I think that people will literally be asking for some kind of private healthcare. They'll be asking for some new system because the NHS is on the brink of collapse. Um, and I don't know if there's any way out of it because it's just going downhill. And there are certain people who, who will have said that actually this is what certain um, schools of or certain groups of individuals, sort of elite politicians and things, it's really what they've wanted all along is yeah. to actually outsource these and make a big profit off that. You know? Yeah, and they're crashing it in the meantime to try and try and kill it to have people demanding it be privatized. Yeah. And the crazy thing is too, is that the, I can't remember who it was who, um, who did the survey, but, but there was some, it might've actually been the WHO or something like that, but they actually rated in 2014, the NHS was rated as the best, the best healthcare system in the world. And that was like only five years ago. And now it's crashing and burning. It's really crazy. Yeah, well, that's interesting that you say that because that same World Health Organization rated the U.S. Uh, as 37th in the world, behind <laughs> Colombia and Portugal, and we have a private system. But our private system is similar to what Elliot just described, as far as like it's not unusual for people have to wait a couple of weeks to get a doctor's appointment. Uh, so it's not. Well, people don't have to wait 24 hours for an ambulance. I won't say that. But there's still the problems of being short-staffed, and there's a problem of uh, outsourcing jobs to lesser-trained individuals, like especially in nursing homes where you have used to be where you would have the nurse who had a certain number of patients. Usually they have a higher number of patients in nursing homes versus in hospitals. But now they're cutting down on the number of staff. So you have fewer nurses and they brought in people who received some training, but they call them med techs and they pass out all the medications, which is what nurses formerly had to do in the nursing homes. So they're getting rid of staff. Nurses are overworked. Doctors are overworked. They can only spend a certain amount of time, like five to 10 minutes with each patient. 
So it sounds like the UK system is going the way of the US system. But that also brings me to another point where it kind of really doesn't matter if a system is socialized or universal or if it's private because they all offer the same allopathic standard mainstream medicine, which does not serve anybody's health really. So I wonder what exactly they're talking about when they say patients are getting good care. Because I work in the healthcare industry here in the US and my definition of what they might mean when they say that someone is getting good care, they're always talking about, oh, we have to give good care to our patients, this, that, and the other thing. But I'm thinking, does care mean just the number of visits they get to the doctor? Like mm. how many times you can refer them to a specialist? But they're not really being cared for. They're being shuttled here and there. They're getting this test. They're getting that test. But they're not getting any healthier. So I don't consider that care. I consider that being busy, like doing things to make it look like you're helping somebody's health. But really, you're just sending them different places. Yeah, that's a good question. I'm not entirely sure what the definition of care is. What I think... um what I think they're referring to in the UK at least is, is that people aren't, aren't like dying on wards. It's got, it's gotten that bad where like the elderly are literally just dying of dehydration and they're laying in their own excrement for like two days. Oh, God. Um, and I think the idea of, uh, well, one of the, de- one of the, it is in the context also of the A&E. So in the accident or what you would call in the US, the ER or the emergency room, the accident and emergency department of the hospital. Um, essentially what you've got is, is, is people who might have like broken their leg or have a big gash on their arm or something. They're having to wait like 13 hours to get it seen to Mm-hmm. Um, I actually, one of the people that I worked with a couple of years ago, um, they needed to go in an ambulance. So I went with them one night, um, and we were waiting, I mean, we were la- waiting like 11 hours mm-hmm. till, till they were seen. Um, and now I don't know what the norm is in other countries or, or whatever. All, all I know is that that wasn't the case. Um, that wasn't the case in the UK. That was never the case in the UK. It was very efficient in 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 in, in that regard. Um, and now, what you've got over the past few years is that the ER department in hospitals is actually being shut overnight. So, for wow. instance, in my town, uh, the A and E department used to be open twenty four hours, whereas n- uh, two or three years ago it was actually shut down so it's only open until 10 o'clock at night time and then it opens again at six o'clock in the morning and so to get to the nearest hospital overnight say if you have an accident like in the night time you have to drive like 30 miles hmm. so or you got to wait it out <laughs> yeah well, you've just the got to the road in the car accident in the middle of the night, they're going to say, uh, wait till 6 a.m. Yeah, we're going to have to wait till 6. Just chill out here for a little while. And they, uh, they take them, yeah, no, they actually drive them to, uh, you're looking at about 15, 20 miles away. They, mm-hmm. they have to because it's lit- they literally shut it down. You're not allowed to bring anyone in overnight. Hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, at the same time, I would agree that the standard of care in terms of, treating any long-term medical conditions is always going to be poor with that with the pharmaceutical paradigm um but at least if people in with acute injuries you'd hope that they could you know get like a bandage (laughs) (laughs) well it's kind of similar in canada actually the um the the wait times and stuff like that like they can they can be quite long uh going to the hospital when i broke my arm i think I had to wait, like it, it was at least three or four hours. And that was like ages ago. That was like, uh, 
I was like 12 years old or something like that. I'll let you guys do the math on that. But, uh, but, um, and I know it's only gotten worse. So I think um, it seems to me like there's a problem with all these healthcare systems and it doesn't really matter if it's universal healthcare or a private company. I mean, see the difference probably is that if you are, if you do have private insurance, you're probably, and you're paying out of pocket for it and it's, and you're paying a fair amount for it, you probably have a standard of care that is a lot higher that you're getting, you know, better treatments or faster service or something along those lines. And it, it does seem to be very stratis stratified that if you can afford really good insurance, then you're probably going to get a standard of care that's a lot higher. And I mean, um, sorry, go on. As far as, the, as far as the ERs in the U.S. go, I don't think it's quite that bad. We have to mm -hmm. wait that long. I haven't been to the ER in a while. I think I had, well, maybe three or four years ago, a car accident, and I just wanted to get a, a CAT scan just to make sure nothing was wrong. I don't recall waiting that long at all. Mm. And uh, I don't hear stories about people having to wait and wait and wait. But the thing about the ERs in the US, whether or not you have insurance, if you go into an ER, they have to treat you, whether you can pay or not. Right. And the hosp some hospital systems do offer some kind of financial aid based on your income. So in some cases, you won't get stuck with a very high bill if you're poor enough to qualify. But one of the problems that we have in the U.S. with the ERs is that people who can't afford health insurance and can't go see like a regular family doctor, they kind of use the ER as a way to... I don't know, like if say they're a diabetic and they run out of their insulin or something, they'll go to the ER because they can't go to a doctor. Or if they just have a cold or if they have a flu, they can't go to their family doctor, they'll go to the ER. So the ER gets kind of backed up, but I still don't think it's quite as bad as what you guys described in Canada and the UK. Yeah. One thing is about the ER in the US, because I was there last year with uh, my husband who had had a, a dog bite and was just more concerned about infection than anything else, but it was bleeding profusely and um, nothing major, didn't need stitches, but more just needed antibiotics probably. Uh, for the two and a half hours that we were there, it cost almost a thousand dollars. Jesus. Um, essentially, you know, a hundred dollars for the antibiotics, $50 for the Band-Aid. And I remember standing there saying that, well, I don't think we need that Band-Aid. We, we've got some at home, <laughs> you know, and, and, and as Tiffany said, because, you know, we're essentially considered low income, we were able to file um, a, a paper that helped alleviate most of those costs. Now, had we not done our own research to find that out, we would have had a thousand dollar medical bill. Mm -hmm. So hence the debt. $50 for a Band-Aid. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's, that's the thing, isn't it? In the US, because they don't have any standard, standardized, like regular regulatory body who determines yeah. the cost of a, of a, um, some kind of treatment or, or um, healthcare item. Yeah. So like in the U S yeah, and I think in other places, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's the <laughs> thing like governments or, or, you know, healthcare systems will basically governments will dictate to these things. Okay. This is how much you will pay. And this is the max. Whereas yeah, exactly. in the U S it doesn't work like that. So no, each individual insurance company actually negotiates all these different things. Right. Yeah. So depending on like each individual health giver, has to have a deal with all these different insurance companies to, to figure out like yeah, how much things should a, cost and stuff. Insurance, you might not be able to go to a particular hospital or see a particular doctor yeah. because your insurance company does not have a relationship with that hospital or that doctor. So it's all kind That's of crazy. But then doctors are also paid by insurance companies, no? Isn't that, that's where they... Get. They get paid by the hospitals and they but, get a certain amount of money for each you know, procedure or surgery or visit that they do. 
And you can make a lot, a lot, a lot of money as a doctor in the US compared to some other countries that have more socialized health care. But from what I understand, even if you are a doctor that's working under a socialized system, you can still live a comfortable lifestyle and still make more than the average oh, yeah. person in your country. You might not become stinking, filthy, dirty, rich like some of the doctors in the U.S., right. but it still affords a particular lifestyle. But I Absolutely. think a problem with being a doctor in a lot of places, if you're a doctor with a conscience and you actually want to help people get healthier, is that the burnout is just severe. Mm. Well, I mean, I can speak in for in Canada. Doctors do quite well. Like that's still considered kind of a <clears throat> top top tier earning profession for sure. Especially yeah. if you're like a specialist of some kind. Yeah, or a surgeon or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, well maybe interesting going back to what Elliot said, I just want to mention this about the ambulance thing. <laughs> um, in the U.S., the ambulance industry makes more money every year than the movie industry does. What? Oh. This is the ambulance industry. Oh, my God. And, and I will say as an American, as an example, with my husband in this injury, you know, he's bleeding everywhere. Do we call an ambulance? No, 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 no. Let's not call an ambulance. Oh. Let's get in our car and drive. They refuse to call an ambulance. When in actuality, like depending on the circumstances, better to have an ambulance come and get you because they can stabilize you on the way to the hospital. But people mm -hmm. are like, well, I'm not, I think I'm having a heart attack. I'm going to drive myself to the hospital. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is insane. Well, should we play that video clip? The, yeah. um, the Vox one? Since we're all thoroughly confused as to <laughs> yeah, exactly. has what system. I cannot tell you how obsessed I am with this chart. It shows exactly what is wrong with America's conversation about healthcare. Uh, on one level, you've seen this chart before. It shows healthcare spending as a share of the economy of, of a bunch of countries. There's Germany and France and Japan and Canada and oh, there's America. But now I wanna add something you haven't seen to this chart. This is how much of that spending in each country is private and how much is public. Here's what's amazing. America's government spending on healthcare, on programs like Medicaid and Medicare and the VA, our versions of socialized medicine, it's about the same size as these other countries. These countries where the government runs the whole healthcare system. And then there's our private spending. It's the private insurance system that makes healthcare in America so expensive. Conventional wisdom says the government is more expensive than the private sector. It, it can't say no, it's corrupt, it's inefficient, it's slow. You want something done right, you give it to the private sector. That is what we hear in America all the time. And yet here we are with the biggest private sector spending the most. Why is a free market so bad at controlling the cost of healthcare in the United States? If you look at the data on physician visits and hospital discharges, you can get rid of one theory. Americans don't consume more healthcare than people in these other countries. We don't go to the doctor more than the Germans or the Japanese. In fact, we go to the doctor less. The difference between us and them is that we pay more. Every time we go to the doctor for everything from an angioplasty to a hip replacement, from a C-section to a pain reliever, in America, the price for the same procedure at the same hospital, it varies enormously depending on who is footing the bill. The price for someone with public insurance like Medicare or Medicaid is often the lowest price. These groups, they cover so many people that the government can demand lower prices from hospitals and doctors and they get those lower prices. If the doctors and hospitals say no, they lose a ton of business. They lose all those people on Medicare, all those people on Medicaid. But there are hundreds of private insurance companies, and they each cover far fewer people than a Medicare or a Medicaid. And each one has to negotiate prices with hospitals and doctors on their own. And if you're uninsured, you have even less leverage. Nobody is negotiating on your behalf. So you end up paying the highest price. One study found that most hospitals charge uninsured patients four times as much as Medicare patients for an ER visit. Other countries, they, they don't have this problem. Instead of every private insurance company negotiating with every healthcare provider, there's just this big list. Country, the central government, they go and they say, if you want to sell to us, to all of our people, then here's what you can charge for a checkup. Here's what you can charge for an MRI or a prescription for Lipitor. And so then whether that bill goes to the heavily regulated private insurance companies in Germany or directly to the government, like in the UK, each country is telling the doctor or hospital or drug company how much that bill will be. 
And because the government controls access to all of the customers, it's an offer that hospitals and doctors and pharmaceutical companies typically can't refuse. I'm gonna make them an offer they can't refuse. In America, the, the idea is that you'll be a consumer, that you'll do what you do when you go to Best Buy and buy a television. But that just doesn't work in healthcare. It doesn't work in healthcare because you often come and get healthcare when you're unconscious in an ambulance, when you're scared, when it's for your spouse or your child. It is a time when you have the least bargaining power. You are not usually capable of saying no. You're not knowledgeable enough to do it, you're not comfortable doing it, or you're not conscious enough to do it. That's why in other countries, the government is a person who can say no for you, who can say no, that's too expensive, you're gonna have to lower your price because they do have that power. A new push for single-payer health care right here in the U.S. California and others are saying maybe we should adopt the European model. If we decided to create a single-payer system with one of these huge prices in the U.S., there'd be nothing to stop lobbying from hospitals, from doctors, from drug companies, and those prices would get influenced. So we could end up with a single-payer system that is expensive, even as expensive as our current system. It all depends on how much you negotiate down the prices. And now in America, these groups have so much power because they are so rich that it's really hard to get them to bring down their prices. This is the irony of American healthcare. It's so expensive that it's become hard to make it cheaper. All that money they make, that becomes political power. And years and years and years of overpaying, those are huge industries now. And they have a lot of influence in Congress. Under a single-payer system, if we did drive prices down, doctors and hospitals, they would be paid less than they are right now. That might mean some of them close, or some go out of business, or some move. It would be really painful. One person's waste is another person's essential service, or local hospital, or their income. But then, single-payer, it's not an all-or-nothing choice. For instance, there's a really interesting section of Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill, where he lays out this interim plan. It's a plan he wants while he's setting up his new single-payer system. And in that plan, he expands Medicare to cover vision and dental, and he opens it to nearly everyone, not just people 65 and older. All kids go on Medicare automatically, and most adults can buy in. That plan, on its own, it wouldn't get American healthcare spending far down overnight, but it would at least begin to recognize what we already know, and what most other countries already do. That healthcare is one of those things the government can do cheaper and better than the private sector. Interesting. So, the American system's kind of messed up, eh? Yeah, and it won't change. There's too much money. Hospitals make yeah. too much money. Insurance companies make too much money. Their lobbying is too strong. They have too much influence. And they're not going to give that up. Just so people can be healthy. Bernie, Bernie can't do it? No. <laughs> no. I don't, I don't think it's going to happen. Well, the U.S. Yeah. Healthcare spent more than $5 billion on lobbying politicians in Washington, D.C. since 1998. <laughs> so I'll give you an idea. See, that's insane. That's just insane. Yeah, I don't know. It, it, it seems to me like there aren't a whole lot of great systems out there. I mean, we've just talked about Canada and uh, the U.K. and the U.S., and it really, it seems to me like there's problems across the board. Um, it's almost like we really need like a new paradigm of what healthcare really is. I mean, essentially you need to have something where a person is supported in some way, not treated like a cog in the wheel, not a burden on the system just because they get ill or have an accident or something like that, and has enough freedom to be able to choose what they're doing and what they're allowed, what kind of treatment they're allowed to seek. Um, and I don't know if there's anywhere in the world that's like that. Well, you know, Maybe it's I'm interesting. Wrong. I was thinking about it just a little bit, just reading for this show and this idea of single payer healthcare. And here in the US, we all have to pay car insurance to drive our car. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I've been paying car insurance for 25 years and maybe used it once or twice. But if there was some sort of system where you could pay $200 a month for some sort of health insurance, but you could go and support your health with things that you're interested, you know, whether it's alternative medicine or massage or physical therapy or any mm -hmm. of those things, uh, herbs, vitamin supplementation, then me, I personally, that would be a worthwhile investment. Yeah, like absolutely. My 
consequence. It would protect me if, you know, unfortunately you break an arm or something, then maybe that costs you a little bit more like, like if you're in a car accident and you have damage to your car and it was your fault, you know? Hmm. So I, I think there's options there, but I don't think my idea would ever come to fruition on any <laughs> real well, level. One problem that they talk about, like when one of the objections to these kinds of ideas is that if there is um, something that covers all your possible medical things, all your health, everything, like even covers like your vitamin supplements or whatever. So that people will use it more that people are kind of like, well, you know, I heard about this thing that's going to make my hair grow back. And since it's covered, I may as well try, even though it's probably BS. And the one solution to that, they say, is the whole deductible idea that if you have a deductible that to use the system just because just because just because you can well another objection that people have at least in the u.s to socialized medicine whether they really know what they're talking about when they say socialized or not is that if you put your health in the hands of the government the government will be able to say well we are we've decided that we no longer can spend any more money on you. So this is the end mm -hmm. of your treatment and we can't do anything else for you. And if that means that you're going to die, then sorry. Yeah. Like yeah. We'll bring up the Charlie guard case or the Alfie Evans case mm -hmm. where the babies who were in the hospital and it seemed hopeless, but their parents like raised money or wanted to take them to a different country where they could get an alternative treatment. And the hospital said no, and basically yeah. took them life support and the babies died. Yeah. That's so, disgusting. That case. Yeah. So when people think of socialized medicine, I think sometimes that comes up where they're like, wow. no, no, I want to be able to do whatever I can for as long as I feel that I need to in order to keep myself alive or one of my family members alive and I'm not going to have the government telling me that this is it. Well, I think that that fear is kind of justified in some sense. Like I can think of a situation which isn't really that far off considering like vaccines, right. Mm -hmm. And how, what vaccines are kind of, um, what the mainstream considers vaccines to be absolutely essential. You know, the like miracle for kind of fighting, like preventing disease. Well, what if they decide, uh, which probably isn't too far off, that in order to um, lower costs for everybody, it's cheaper for everybody to get the vaccine so that they don't have to treat an illness later on. Um, and then suddenly nobody has a choice on whether or not they want to get the vaccine. It's mandatory. It's like, no, no, you have to get the vaccine because we don't want to have to pay for any care for you if you get the disease down the road. So I can see in, in a system that's like kind of a universal health care that they would start to enforce the type mm -hmm. of care that you yeah. get. And I mean, it's already, it's already the situation where if you have a particular condition, like Elliot was talking about before, if you have a particular condition, you don't have a choice over what kind of treatment you get. This is your choice. Yeah. And also just to piggyback onto that, um, they're, they're already doing that in terms of if you are a smoker, then you, you're being denied um, certain treatments uh, in certain places. Or the GP surgery might say if you're a smoker or you partake in this activity or you behave in a certain way in your lifestyle, then you're not going to be able to get an appointment. It's almost like they are penalizing people um, with the with the logic in mind that we are paying for your healthcare. Therefore you do what we say or else yeah. we won't pay for it. And that's yeah. basically it. And they've got the justification to do that somewhat because they're, they're in charge. They're completely in charge. So if you had a benign sort of, you know, genuinely decent healthcare system that wasn't based on profit, wasn't based on pharmaceutical, um, like, uh, the, that that whole paradigm if it was genuinely good then that kind of system would probably be you know top notch mm. but you can't you the problem is in our modern world you can't trust the people who are in who are making the decisions about what 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 categorizes as good health healthcare yeah. because what they think is good healthcare 
differs greatly from what we think is good healthcare. Yeah. <laughs> and the other thing is too, I mean, you can, you can turn it around too, where it's like, if you look at, say, um, we did have some kind of ideal healthcare system where they would cover whatever. Well, you know, what happens when a person doesn't take care of themselves? You know, they're eating the glutens, they're eating the, uh, you know, the sugar and all this other kinds of garbage. And they just, they don't care. They're just going to eat junk food. Then that person is going to become a burden on the system. So it's kind of like, where, <clears throat> where do you kind of draw that line? I mean, maybe there is no line. Maybe they're free to do that. Maybe it's like, you know what? That person just wants to eat crap all day. Unfortunately, they're a bit of a burden on the system, but we're just going to have to deal with that. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like, it's, it's not an easy thing to kind of sort through. Yeah. I think maybe the best that we can do is to, for ourselves and for each individual, just to stay as healthy as possible in the best way yeah. they know how in order to avoid the system altogether, whether it is privatized or if it's socialized. Yeah. I mean, I guess <clears throat> that's kind of like generally good advice anyway. Just try, mm -hmm. you know, if you can avoid having to undergo any kind of medical intervention, that's probably a good thing. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, considering the 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 case that we're in right now, I think I think that that's the best that we can do. And I mean, in a way, you're kind of being a better citizen that way too, because you're going to be less of a burden on the system, at least in our uh, universal healthcare countries. Well, what about if you need some um, expensive procedure and it's going to cost a you Brazilian a hundred thousand dollars in the U.S.? What would be your option? Well, medical there tourism. Always, yeah, <laughs> there's always uh, you know head out of, head out of country. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, according to a study by the Delouette Consulting Company, um, in 2010 there was 875,000 Americans as medical tourists. Mm -hmm. Wow. So they'll go to like places like Dubai or Malaysia, uh, Malaysia, South Korea, Russia. Mexico, different places yeah. in Latin America in order to get, or India even, and get procedures done that in the U.S. will cost them hundreds of thousands of dollars and might cost them like a few thousand dollars someplace else. Yeah, I think in the reading on the average, it's 65% cheaper to travel to another country to get a service done. 65% cheaper. And that's the crazy thing is that, that includes like airfare, stay in a hotel. All that kind of five stuff. Five star hotel. <laughs> five star hotel. See, it's I never realized this before, kind of like researching this show a little bit. But apparently, there's in in the U.S. and maybe other countries as well. But they actually have like you uh, like medical tourism companies that will arrange for you to get procedures in different countries, and they organize your air travel for you know you and your spouse or your family or whatever, and a place to stay, and you know only the best care in this hospital or that hospital. I didn't realize it was such a big thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's not like they're going off to some uh, quack shaman someplace, <laughs> <laughs> uh, even though, you know, the definition of a quack kind of <laughs> changes. But these in these places where these people go for medical tourism, the doctors have been trained in Western medicine, maybe educated in Western universities. So they're essentially getting the same care. And I use that in quotation marks just because I'm not convinced that care is care as they define it. But they're getting the same kind of services that they would get in the US, maybe even better, one would argue, because of the stress of how much it might cost is it's all brought down. Well, the other crazy thing, it, it's not just U.S. citizens that are doing this either. There's plenty of countries that even like, you know, Canadians um, will often, I shouldn't say will often, but there are cases where Canadians actually go to the U.S. for medical tourism. Mm -hmm. And now generally that's um, a situation where there's a procedure that isn't available in Canada um, or one that won't be covered by their medical insurance um, or the universal insurance. So. There are cases, I mean, I think that probably the U.S. is the most common um, medical tourist um, where the tourists are coming from. It's convenient. 
But what's yeah, well, interesting about that is um, in the U.S., if you need prescription drugs, like what is the prescription drug they give for the GERD, gastrointestinal reflux disease? Oh, uh, the PPIs. Yeah. Yeah. So you can buy that drug in Canada for half the price that you can get it in the U.S. Yeah, a lot of Americans get their drugs from Canada. Yeah. Um, one of the I think that one of the reasons um, why the U.S. does have all of these really sort of high-tech, elite kind of treatments, like services, because they're like the leading um, world, sort of the leading country in terms of, um, you know, weird and wonderful medical techniques, like for all different, you know, cancer therapies and all of these different weird and like uh specialized um treatments uh, many of them you can only get in the u.s but um one of the analysts um who i was listening to about this he made an interesting point and i never really considered it this way he he was saying that the reason why uh the united states are the leaders in terms of medical technology and sort of um therapeutic specialization is because of the fact uh because healthcare costs so much mm. yeah so he was saying because because it's all like privatized and everything that the money that is the money that americans are paying means that the companies pharma companies make so much from it that they have so much more to invest mm. in the research so he was he was saying that is like a good thing. He was saying, okay, you know, the US system isn't all that bad because it means that we're the leaders because we get funded by big pharma. Now, whether any of the the, the therapies actually work or not is another question because right. most of them are based on technologies and basically making new drugs. It's mm -hmm. like, yeah, okay, you can't get a drug. You can only get this new drug in, in America. Does the new drug actually work? questionable because sometimes it only prolongs a lifespan by like three or four months but i just thought that was interesting but i'd like to add about medical tourism is that when i was in india um unfortunately the person i was with um got bitten by a mosquito um and we were on the beach at the time and it took a it got infected and it didn't clear up. And so we had to actually spend some time in a hospital over there. And uh, it was a private hospital. But although the doctors seem to be trained in, in Western medicine, um, I will say that the quality of, there's that word again, Tiff, the quality of care is, was, was astounding in that, in that, um, my impression of it was that they didn't seem to uh, view the human body so much as a machine. Maybe this is due to their sort of Ayurvedic roots or whatever, or the, you know, the, the healthcare systems that used to be predominant in India. But what we found was that they were actually very focused on things like diet and sleep and, mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, not prescribing unnecessary medications like, you know, they, they, they were, uh, very reluctant to prescribe uh, any kind of uh, birth control pills or oral contraceptive pills or anything like that. Um, very much um, wanting to maintain, you know, like um, basically don't use medications unless you need to. And that's what other people have said as well. So um, I think maybe that's also something that appeals to people is that actually they see that there are people who are practice practicing medicine in a slightly different way um and that actually you might actually get higher quality sort of more holistic based doctor in another country even if they do have a similar level of education if mm. that makes sense didn't um the nhs used to cover homeopathy elliot he, um i don't know i, thought I was reading that recently <laughs> but they they like they stopped like relatively recently. They're like, no, the NHS is no gonna no longer going to cover that. And some people were cheering, and some people were. It's a very divisive issue, so some people were upset by it. But, but I was surprised by that actually. Yeah, I can't imagine the NHS funding. <laughs> 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 yeah, 
<laughs> yeah. <clears throat> well, I don't know. Have we pretty much covered this topic then? What do you think? I'm still as confused as before, but well, I'll yeah, I mean, <laughs> what, what, uh, what do we think? What, I mean, I guess we've kind of like talked about what we think a good system would actually be, you know, to have uh, something that would cover, um, like, I think it, it seems pretty obvious to me that having some kind of safety net there is, is, mm -hmm. is pretty vital, you know, like we're humans, we're in like 2019, you know, the, the whole like live or die, like if you, you know, if you uh, had an injury and you go bankrupt from it, too bad. Like that seems kind of like outdated at this point. Like within your country, it kind of seems like you should be looking out for your fellow citizens. Like you're all, you're all kind of on the same team. So mm -hmm. maybe we should all be kind of looking out for each other in that way. But getting into the details of it, it's pretty complicated. Yeah. I don't know what the best system is, but I do think that everybody should be able to choose what kind of treatment they they want to undergo. Yeah, I would be all for universal health care. I mean, I would still do it, even if it is allopathic mainstream medical care, just in the interest of solidarity. But my ideal system would be like if we had socialized health care, um, if there was more of an emphasis on proper diet that is fitting to the human species Absolutely. and less of an emphasis on uh, pharmaceuticals and useless testing. That would be yeah. my ideal system. Yeah, I agree. And if you're able to access any kind of alternative treatment like acupuncture or uh, homeopathy or anything like that, that would be good too. But it'll never happen. <laughs> I mean, as long as these things are these big, like monolithic kind of things, like entities that you can't really, there's no leeway within those. There isn't yeah. enough enough flexibility to kind of deal with all that different kind of stuff. And it's like, they just end up taking this perspective that anything other than what we say is quackery. Yeah. And it's like, we're not going to pay for that. Well, I mean, that's the problem. I mean, some stuff out there is quackery, no doubt. But a lot of times I think that's a pharmaceutical interventions. That's the quackery. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a complicated thing. Well, I think, um, I think that's it for our show today. Thanks everybody for joining us. I hope we haven't just thoroughly confused you even more. Um, and yeah, be interesting to see in the comments if anybody has any feelings on uh, on this topic. Maybe uh, can give us some opinions on that. Leave a comment, like and subscribe, and we'll see you uh, you guys all next time on Objective Health. Bye. 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 Bye.